Oh, actually, I'm going to stop. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> no, this is about the time where like some some member of my family decides to call. Oh yeah, that would be like. Oop, oh, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be like. Oh, I was thinking it would be like some somewhat meta if uh, I called in t- to you, <laughs> and I was like, no, that that would just be silly. Oh. All right. Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Aaron Flores, broadcasting from the People's Republic of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. We're the show that brings you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally, with a global perspective, and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains, transit, adventures, and life hacks, and today, digging a hole... Go dig a hole. <laughs> go dig a hole. Get out of here and go dig a hole. Okay. <laughs> we have we have Chris. Can we use your last name? Yeah, Sims. Chris Sims from Go Dig a Hole, uh, a a po- podcast recorded right here in our studios. In, yeah. In, 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 in studios. fact, all of uh, twenty minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, you're welcome. Go dig a hole is a archaeological. Wow words and me aren't getting along already yeah so go dig a hole is an archaeological podcast uh that has several missions uh one of them is to create an inclusive environment or digital community for the general public to have an accessible approach to archaeology or early career researchers so if you're just starting off as an undergrad or just a, a generally interested member of the public uh, we try and make it accessible and inclusive. So um, there are a lot of barriers and gatekeeping present in that discipline, and so we try and break them all down. Right on, nice. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that more once as we get as we get into it here. Yeah. Um, and then the, the podcast itself um, is one that is sort of every now and then. Is that correct? Yeah, we try and have at least two episodes a month. Um, We have a back catalog of archive episodes from uh, a podcast network that we uh, separated from. So we have, you know, a lot of episodes. You took those with you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We kept that IP. Uh, Right. (laughs) uh, We're sitting on a, a pretty large back catalog of episodes. So whenever we don't have time to record a new episode here in the Airstream studio, uh, then we just go through the archive and, and put out an old one and, you know, with some editorial commentary. Right on. Because uh, some things don't age so well. Uh, we've been doing it since about 2014 or 2015. And uh, so, you know, some, some of the content's pretty dated. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you're also a bike commuter here in Portland. Yes. Cool. Well, we look look forward to picking your brain about your commute experiences. Uh, yeah. And also some archaeology. Before we do so, though... Um, you were out of town for a while. Yeah, I guess I was going to be like, well, should we catch up? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yes, we should. Actually, up until about 20 minutes ago, that's all we were going to do. We were going <laughs> to... Who's, who's our listener who wrote in, who was like, you should have more shoot the shit episodes. We'll, we'll shoot the sh- shit for, you know, 10 or 15 minutes here. Yeah. It'll be good. Um, you were in the Redwoods. That I was. Jane and I took a little bit of a break on down to the Redwoods, and... It was a really good experience. Um, I've biked through the Redwoods on the trip down to San Diego quite a few years ago now. 
Uh, and so whenever I get to travel down through that area, I always kind of like um, retracing some of the steps. And it's pretty easy when you're on 101 or Highway 1. Um, and it was funny because when we went to the Elk Creek or the Elk Prairie campground, I always go look in the uh, bear boxes and I saw oh, Tim, yeah. Tim Mooney's pedal shift sticker was still in there. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I sent him a, I think I sent him an email or a text there and he's like, oh yeah, that's from the Thanksgiving episode. Right on. <laughs> so uh, it's fun. I, I brought back a couple of photos of the, the various uh, bear box art. I think it's my favorite, like somewhat un- undescript art form that you'll find when you're bike traveling or touring. Um, and then the trip itself was really nice. We headed out kind of mid afternoon on a Thursday. Um, I don't know if you got the voicemail. Um, as yes, we, were kind we of, played it last oh, episode. Yeah, okay, actually. cool. Yeah. So that, that was at like three o'clock as we were getting ready to leave Portland. Um, and we made it down the first night to a, uh, spot in the Kalmiopsis wilderness, which is close to no Selma. Idea. Um, okay. So there's a Selma Wilderness Center. If you go down to Grants Pass and you try to cut over to um, Crescent City, that's kind of the route that that takes you through there. And it's a really special spot in Oregon for me. I've done some trail building in those woods back in high school and um, was able to check out some of those trails, like see how they're still oh, doing. Oh, so this was a lot of off-road? Uh, it was off-road or close to road. So so some of the trails, totally off-road. You, you right have to on. Go a while. Um, but we, we stuck a little bit closer to front country. Uh, and we were driving down. We were trying to make it to... Wait, um, front country is an actual word? Oh, yeah. Like... Back country. So front country being uh, within an hour of civilization, in essence. Uh, so if you talk about that that golden window, if you The get... mind boggles. Yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, back country, like, you just assume you know what it what it means by by the context of, mm-hmm. in, of which is used i did not know it was like a technical term um I, and then there's other levels of, of country so yeah. to speak <laughs> yeah so just there a mid country <laughs> right yeah I, I don't know mid country is like that that point in between so front country at least in my understanding and if i'm using this wrong um i it's been a while since i've been in what i thought was front country so maybe maybe i'm not using it correctly but i I think in essence what it comes from is uh if you talk about from an emergency response or emergency rescue standpoint you kind of have that uh golden hour where if something bad happens to a person if you get them into intensive care soon enough or within that window um then your survival chances are significantly higher than if you miss that window and so front country being about within an hour of emergency services uh so you can be technically in the woods but still in front country and then once you get out past that hour window you're in back country um but yeah then you got to rely on your own survival skills yeah you you kind of you know, cross your fingers and hope you don't right. get bitten by a snake or such um but yeah it was fun we we kind of were aimed at the coast and ended up uh driving up into the Kalmiopsis just a little bit and got a campsite next to this really interesting individual um who we ended up staying uh up very late the first night and then also we delayed breaking camp for like three hours the next morning because we were just like having so much fun talking with him stuff (laughs) yeah he's he's this um gold miner from illinois who's a vietnam those exist yes they they do oh yeah (laughs) just like well i mean the river well (laughs) so you can pan um and as he would put it the people who pan do about 2.5 maybe three ounces over the course of a summer uh just Uh down on the illinois river uh which is a tributary to the rogue down there um he's been doing it since 1989 and it was really interesting. Um, I was feel incredibly fortunate to get the chance to really talk with him because he 
you know, your, your expression of uh, astonishment is not misplaced in the sense that there really aren't that many people doing that, and particularly in that way anymore. Um, so he was, um, for, you know, kind of considering a lot of things, okay. you know, his life in the woods since the 1980s, roughly, because uh, he basically picked up stakes and headed west and right. struck his fortune. Wow. Um, but he was a Vietnam veteran and um, just had a lot of life stories to tell. So right? we, we really enjoyed um, oh, wow. getting that perspective. And you, you know, when you talk with somebody and some of the things just seem so fantastical that you're like, yeah, I'm like totally taking you at face value, but also like I'm not 100% confident <laughs> right, in, right. The, in the veracity of this truth. Um, and so <laughs> he was talking about, so we, we were talking like 2.5 ounces for, um, for a summer, for a yeah. summer. Yeah. And he has apparently actually pulled out like 500 pound bricks from that area. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. But then he actually showed us a photo. <laughs> oh, really? I was of, like, of bricks of gold. Uh, oh, yeah. Dang. So he showed us his catch from, um, last summer and, or, or, or from earlier this season, basically he, he, I mean, he's been up there since 1989. So where was this campsite again? It, 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 right, right. <laughs> what, what forest? What I, river? Exactly. I mean, I would say go up, go up there and uh, like anybody who is a ranger there, I'm sure knows him. It's just like, oh yeah, that's Ron, like yeah. over there. Um, but it was interesting because I have heard a lot of stories of trial and tribulation and, um, frankly just sorrow associated with gold industry right. uh, up in alaska and people you know like that gold fever and then it just never comes and you end up wasting your youth and your life and your everything else at, in pursuit of something that just never materializes um he's probably the luckiest gold miner i've ever run across in the sense that um <laughs> there's been a couple of times where he was g going out and um didn't quite know the ropes and so he basically, I, th I think the way he puts it is, I just go places that nobody else wants to go, and and that's where I typically find the gold. <laughs> okay. So if you're if you're, um, you know, the the go getter, he'll he'll tunnel down into the middle of nowhere, whereas other people would take the slightly okay. easier uh, patch. And um, yeah, he he showed us this photo of his hall, and it, you know, like if you picture uh, national treasure or something like that, and there's like these gold bars that people are like stacking on this pallet, right? And and like here's a pallet of gold bars, and I'm like, well, you are not lying. That's <laughs> actually a photo. Um, and so yeah, just like super super interesting person. Um, and just, I yeah. I will confess, I did not even think gold was still pulled from the earth. Yeah, I honestly yeah. thought like whatever gold is out there is out there now. Right, mm -hmm. it's all tapped out. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> We've reached peak gold. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting. Like his perspective is, I think, definitely shaped by the experiences he, that he's had, um, and the way he, he's kind of big. And this is something that's pretty present within most like gold miners, or I think gold mining community of, um like a big disgruntlement of going off of the gold standard and in, in preference oh, yeah. for paper money. Okay. Yeah. You know, they'll still talk about like the mining act of 1894 or something like that. Um, and that, and apparently it's that act 1894, 1892. That's one I haven't looked up this week, but I've been meaning to, um, the reason he's out there and the place that he is, is technically this is national wilderness land. But if you have a claim that's preexisting, then you are, um, that pre-exists the establishment of the national Correct. wilderness. Yeah. Okay. Then, then you are are you get the grandfather into it, right? Uh, and so that's where he has a, a couple of claim sites. So he's he's very much like 
he's an interesting fellow. Um, <laughs> is he like so, an archivist? Does he go back and find like historical claims? Yeah, that, that grandfather passed the establishment of these Correct. national parks. Yeah, and then he'll he'll put uh, bids on that claim, and that's actually why he was there. Is there was a claim right up above from the campsite, uh, in which had been in a family since the 1910s or 1920s, and the family finally lapsed on the claim for it. So that's what he had picked up and was going to be going after this summer. Um, so it, it's oh my God, like I want to follow this guy around and like start a whole new podcast just based on this dude. Claim yeah. jumper. You're right. The claim right. jumper podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he, <laughs> this is like something that like radio lab would produce. Yeah. Maybe it's, it's possible. Well, and that was the thing is like, um, I think Jane and I are planning another trip down there sometime before the end of this summer. Uh, cause we don't really feel like our chapter has closed with our conversation with Ron. So we wanted to go, we do, like, honestly, we're like, you're, you're going to go specifically to search for this guy. Well, yeah. I, I mean, also in considering that he's in one of the most beautiful areas of okay, the entire yeah, state. Yeah. So it's kind of like y- you win either way. You either, you either find Ron and he's at the claim, uh, or, or he's not around and, <laughs> and, and you're, you're still out in, really still out in the wilderness. Right on. Um, but yeah, I feel like, I feel like we really made a, made a good connection there. Um, and he the way what he does is so a lot of people pan for and then kind of like my um biggest well i I guess not biggest but one of the gripes i have against gold mining in the present sense is uh it's a lot of like really intense extraction in comparison to the amount of gold that you pull and so the interesting thing about ron is he still does it by pick and so he um doesn't take a entire riverbed and run thousands of gallons of water through it each week in order to just sift that gold out and then you have um areas of riparian zones which are just completely trashed for generations to come or take a very long time to to we're talking about like like chemical impact Um, or or just how the the water is diverted well what what you what most small time gold miners do these days is you get um it's sort of like a sluice and you will finds a source of water and then you basically start digging so you get a backhoe or an excavator and you're just pulling just chunks right out of the riverbed or the nearby nearby soil you're running a bunch of water through that and then it all just kind of um the gold gold filters down so you're you're running something um like a machine about the size of this airstream trailer roughly if you're talking like mid-size or a little bit smaller than that if you have to pack it out uh but but you know you get like an eighth or a tenth of an ounce for churning up you know years and years of riverbed right stuff like that so uh, not to say that (laughs) That resource extraction isn't resource extraction several hundred possibly years to build up yeah Yeah. and it's it's incredibly damaging to the ecosystem okay and so that's where like the the part of me that's like well you know there's you know this level of extraction which will always be present if we're going after natural resources and then at the same time if it's got to be I'm kind of okay with Ron out there with a pick. <laughs> if it's like, just one dude yeah, out there. Yeah. Finding a right. seam and uh, like just going into a hillside where, you know, a hole is created. Uh, but in regards to general disturbance to the area around it, it's relatively low. It's a, it's a relatively low impact uh, form of mining and it's very uh, targeted because you're, you're literally just hammering on what you're going for. Right. So, um, but yeah, it, it was, it was interesting. Um, and he had some really, unique perspective on the vietnam war i think as well and to ha- to hear him tell it uh he didn't leave his family in illinois to escape from his experience in vietnam coming back from the war um 
I think if you were to look at that, like outside of his perception of it, I think he might have a little bit, but uh-huh. I think it's also very much that, um, he, he said when he was eight years old, he told his folks, he's like, I want to be a gold miner. And then, you know, after he came back from the war, he's like, yep, fuck this. I'm going to go, right. like, I'm going right. to go do my thing. And, uh, yeah, he's been at it ever since. Wow. So that was the first night and a half of our trip. <laughs> um, and that was day one. Yeah, it yeah. really was. So we just kind of like <laughs> wow. launched, launched right into it. That, that He just reminds me um, a lot of another fellow up in Alaska who I had the um, deep privilege to meet the acquaintance of who was a homesteader. Um, and when he... That was, still exists? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See? Well, so it, like, kind of. Um, the Homesteading okay. Act was, I think, discontinued in the late, 1980s or early 1990s um and there's actually a pretty like i think dark past in regards to like the intention of the homestead act yeah. itself so yeah it was meant to displace indigenous yeah people. let's let's like i guess I, I'm, I wasn't trying to i won't let's not beat around the bush about right. it <laughs> like that's what it was yeah. we don't have to romanticize it. exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's um, settler colonialism <laughs> precisely yeah. so uh, you know to the extent that uh that is what happened. Um, just you meet some very interesting folks, and and just that spirit. I think you get this on bike touring a lot too. So I'll, I'll draw a parallel here: is when something breaks, you don't go to the store and get the new part. You fix it, right? And you find a way to fix it with whatever you have in the best way that you can. Uh, and if you live out on the homestead, or if you live, um, you know, in a tent in the Calmeopsis wilderness for thirty years, you tend to get pretty good at fixing a lot of things with very little. Uh-huh. Uh, so that uh-huh. there's kind of that crafty, uh, you know, doing nature, which I, I think I've just always appreciated and I think is really handy in a bike touring world as well. My mind goes back to that film. Was it two years ago in film by bike where uh, it came out of Cuba and all of these like mm-hmm. these fixes that these these Cuban bike mechanics yeah. did because there weren't any more parts and whatever parts yeah. they, they had, they had essentially had to fabricate out of other things. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, where'd you get that? Well, I, I made, made it. it. <laughs> 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 yeah. I've just, I've, I've always appreciated that. So, um, yeah, the, the rest of the trip was really nice as well. So the next day we had two nights at Burlington campground, which is in slash part of the Avenue of the Giants. So kind of that, yeah. the, the deep section of the Redwoods right along the Eel River. And it was really nice. We just kind of took it mellow. Um, we both brought our books down. And with when I'm bike touring, I, I'm almost always like, I've got five books. I'm going to read, you know, the heck out of these. And I get like halfway down wherever I'm traveling. And I'm like, I have not touched my book at all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> too tired, too hungry, yeah. too sore, too, yeah. too like headlamps out, needed it to cook food, <clears throat> something like that. Um, but car camping is nice in that way and that you don't really have to worry about that so much so we we brought the pillows we we owned that experience (laughs) and um it was nice so we yeah basically just hung around in the redwoods and um read some books and uh got to do some swimming in the eel river and i really like garberville so we got a chance to go down to garberville there there anybody who's listening to this who's been to garberville is probably like shaking their heads somewhat quizzically of like what why would you heal I would do like Garberville um, <laughs> it has been the response I've gotten from basically everybody I've told this to so far, but something about that town um, on the bike trip itself, it was one of the last days that I had to take shuttle for because um, my knees were pretty swollen slash messed up at that point. And so for me, Garberville was like that, that, that sign of freedom where it's like, ah, I can be on the bike 
every day now from this point onward. So right on. um, just kind of posting it up there and, and continuing south. So uh, we got, yeah, a good two, two and a half days of relaxing in. It's kind of weird to stay in the camp, same campsite for two nights because I'm not very used to doing that. Uh, and then we headed back up to Portland and we made it basically to Cottage Grove. And then there was this campsite out by a lake or a reservoir nearby, um, close to an Army Corps of Engineers site or something like that, which is a really interesting experience. Like we had, we had like three excellent nights of camping. Um, and then like one very odd night of camping where, we rolled in and uh, we got in at like 10.05 or 10.10 or something like that. Um, and I, I don't know if you've ever been uh, like camping in enough spots that are similar, but also what what is so similar about them actually proves to be the small differences between them. Like you just pick up on these things when you roll in. And the first thing I noticed was that instead of like a sign that said, you know, please be quiet and respect our... Uh, like quiet hours or something like that they had signs like posted all over these like on trees on boards on 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 picnic tables that was like <laughs> after 10 p.m be quiet be quiet be quiet be quiet be quiet <laughs> and like oh god <laughs> okay well i'm gonna be quiet so we like we roll in at 10 i like how they like hammered all these signs yeah, yeah. onto like trees and stuff like be yeah. quiet be respectful yeah it was just a like, tree that we just like, put a hole in an eight and a half <laughs> right. by 11 piece of paper that's just like all it says is be quiet like 13 times oh on it. God. You're like, holy <laughs> shit. So like, wow. I was like, all right, I'm kind of getting a vibe from this place like as we get in there, but it's 10.05 and we're not going to drive another three and a half hours up to get to Portland that night. Um, so we start making camp and like we take a walk around and we are literally the only people in the campsite besides the host. And um, I, I kind of took it off of the be quiet signs that like if it's 10.05, uh, you probably don't want to be bothered with a check-in. Uh in in Oregon campgrounds, I've had this happen so often that the envelopes will be, um, you know, wet or not present or already used up. So, like, what you do is you get a piece of paper and you pay the fee and you put as much information as you can oh, remember yeah, yeah. them asking for typically. And then you put it in the fee slot. So, we did that. And then at, like, 1140, the camp host came out and we hear this, like, gravel crunching and this big light shines on the tent. And the first thing he says is... Um, why didn't you check in? We're like, well, it said it was quiet hours. And he's like, why didn't you pay your fee? I was like, we did pay your fee. And he's like, oh, I got you. There's no envelopes. I took them away. And I was like, oh, you took away the envelopes. Because... <laughs> <laughs> You like, know, was that his way, like, of forcing uh, you to check in with I mean, the host? I, I'm going to guess that was his okay. logic. Uh-huh. It, it didn't work. And it's not... <laughs> I don't think it's very, like... I don't think it's very common practice to, right. to do that, especially after, um, especially after quiet time. So, like, here we it's, are, like, just had gotten to sleep getting woken up by the camp host and like no we really did pay for the site like did you check the box and he's like well when are when are you leaving in the morning we'll figure it out then and uh it's kind of this funny double standard because he wanted us to bother him after 10 but since we were trying to get back early we were leaving at seven and he's like well let's just call it eight see me at eight and i was like (laughs) okay well you can't be annoyed at us for not checking in with you at 10 right but do be annoyed at us for checking in earlier than eight like <laughs> well, you, you can either do both one way or both the other way right right uh, but that's a bit of a double standard sir so anyway it, <clears throat> i i just have to share because most of my camping experiences are excellent and like i've never really had something like that happen before so it stuck out to me more than yeah usual, that is I guess strange is what I'd say. 
What a uh, catch 22. Yeah. Yeah. It, Jane was asking um, what Ashland was like. And I was thinking back to like childhood memories of getting scolded by adults for like jumping in the wrong end of the pool. And I was like, <laughs> but it's still a pool. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, this campsite, this is like Ashland. You jumped yeah. in the wrong end. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. Pa- paid, paid my fare, but still jumped in the wrong end. <laughs> yep. So um, yeah, it was a great trip. It's super fun. So glad nice. to be back in Portland. And I think um, feeling ready to, to tackle the week again <laughs> that's my story right on <laughs> i i can't believe so far in this 20 minutes of recording i've discovered that not only does gold mining still exist but homesteading still exists or yeah. kind of exists and in a weekend you you've met both of these things yep that's great the wonders of traveling <laughs> wow in a beautiful part of the country, too. Oh, yeah. 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 If, uh, I'm really jealous, I must say. Well, we could do a bike trip this summer. We're going to have to. I'd like to. I, I have maps of the Oregon coast, and I've never I've never just made use of them yet. Gotcha. And, but Yeah, I would say anybody who's listening, if the Illinois River or the Kalmyopsis Wilderness has not been on your radar, and you want to go to a place in Oregon that barely anybody goes, but is absolutely gorgeous. Put Don't go up. there. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm not that person. It's though. a secret. Stop going there. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna gatekeep. Go, go check it out. Yeah, <laughs> it's beautiful. It's um, really that stretch from Grants Pass to Crescent City. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Have you spent time down there? Yeah, I work a lot with a, a tribe in Northern California called the uh, Karuk Tribe. Okay. And um, they're kind of in that area between Grants Pass and Crescent City mm-hmm. uh, near the Six Rivers or yeah. the Siskiyou National Monument. And um, so I've, I've made probably, I don't know, in, in the last like two and a half to three years, like over a dozen trips down there. And I end up staying with them like a week each time. And it is it's just like breathtakingly beautiful scenery. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so remote too. like what what you started off the conversation with about, about like front country versus back country. It's like you like driving down there like I, I always have to drive in a car to get to them. You get to Grant's Pass and then to go visit them. It's another three hours past Grant's Pass and there's no cell signal the rest of the way. And you're just on these back country mountain roads, you know, like winding back and forth switchbacks wow. yeah, yeah. for three hours. Oh my gosh. And I've been out there during wildfires. I've been out there during snow it, and it's just like every single time it's amazing. It's surprising. And it's also a little scary. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's really a special part of the country. So it, uh, that's so special that you and Jane got to, you know, bike pack around there and that's pretty awesome and and car camp too yeah it was nice (laughs) it occurs to me i this is somewhat of a confession my view of what archaeology is or entails might be slightly skewed in that when you mentioned like you work with this tribe like it seems obvious now that you say that given our location here in in oregon um but it it didn't occur to me like yeah that's probably what you're studying most right yeah uh and, and that's that's a a totally valid uh way to think of it like i grew up in the southeastern us and mm-hmm. uh there's not a very strong tribal presence in the southeastern us and so archaeology in the southeastern us is is largely St. Petersburg like, Florida 
Right. It, it's, you're not really engaging descendant communities. Mm-hmm. Whereas here in the Pacific Northwest and up and down the West Coast, descendant communities, like, they were not displaced by the Indian Removal Acts. And so, um, like, the, the Karuk tribe in Northern California, for example, they've been there, like, archaeologically confirmed for five to 6,000 years. Wow. And never displaced. And it, the, there were several Indian wars, too, in the 1850s. came in, the U.S. Army came through and tried and tried and tried to displace them. And because of the terrain, you know, as, as you've experienced, these very steep valleys with, like, rushing rivers going through mm-hmm. them, uh, it's a very difficult terrain to kind of gain a strategic advantage on. And so the army could never succeed. And so these tribes maintained their ancestral homelands. And, you know, in other parts of the country, you didn't have those kinds of features going on. And so there there was a lot of Indian removal. And so it it is totally different, like out here in, in the Pacific Northwest and kind of up and down the West Coast, where it's like there's a very, very strong ancestral territory. So it's like, here we are in Portland, uh, and this is like uh, the Multnomah tribe, which mm-hmm. is like a, a descent, uh, a, a part of the the Chinookan people that live up and down the Pacific Northwest. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Like they they have a very strong presence, and they're very active in the community as well. And it's interesting as an archaeologist to have to um, work with tribes and work with descendant communities uh, because there's a lot of a a trust relationship that Mm -hmm. has to be navigated. I was wondering how that would work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, you know, as as like a a white person uh, working with tribes, there's a lot of distrust and it's totally understandable. And, and there's, there's a, you know, an unfortunate history behind that, that you have to be very sensitive to. Sure. Um, And so a lot of that just involves, or it requires kind of stepping back and, and letting indigenous people lead the way through, you know, th- es- establishing their priorities for what, what should be studied. And so it's mm-hmm. like one of the examples is like archaeologists love digging up human skeletons. They're like, <laughs> if you can dig up a human skeleton, <laughs> right. you're like, this is- I can learn so much about this person uh-huh. if I can just look at their skeleton. I can I can tell like uh, the kind of n- nutrition they had during their life. I can tell like any blunt force trauma they might have had that caused them to die. Maybe it was a war, uh, and it's very exciting to an archaeologist. But to uh, an indigenous group, they're like, "Yo, that's my great grandfather. Right, right. Can you please leave him in the ground? Uh, this is extremely disrespectful." Right, and so it, it's it's uh, navigating that balance between like. Uh, as an archaeologist, I want to study something, but as an anthropologist, I have to be respectful of uh, the indigenous community. Uh, and so it's it's really fun and interesting to, to be doing that here in the Pacific Northwest. You mentioned uh, anthropology, and a little bit of my impression is that in a very similar sense, um, there's been a lot of coming to terms with perceptions of the study in the field that have needed to take place in order for it to be i guess even um like useful or fruitful in the present tense like i'm thinking of um just the the understanding of cultural anthropology and how you go from uh sort of armchair 
anthropology of the the, the past 1800s, early 1900s, um, of of going to places and taking artifacts and then making inferences from them in Cambridge or Oxford or something yes. like that. Um, do, would you mind speaking a little bit about because your your podcast is also uh, aimed at breaking down those barriers and kind of like what that means or what that looks like or looks like from from that historical perspective. That's a really good point. And so uh, that that kind of history that you're talking about, uh, you know, really to call out the British Museum it is really kind of like the example of imperialism, right? And so like it was and, it was built on imperialism. Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. We and own so, this place now we can dig up whatever we want and yeah, take it back with us. Yeah. yeah. We all we all love King Tut, but like they got King Tut's remains through imperialism. And anthropology as a discipline, as, as you pointed out, has its roots in imperialism and colonialism. And, and as, as you started off the conversation about settler colonialism going into Alaska and the Homesteader Act and all that. Um, and so a lot of anthropology was initially built on legitimizing settler colonialism and imperialism around the world. And so it had its roots in antiquities, collecting various curiosities from other cultures around the world that were being colonized or had um, economic or military interests around the world. And so then you have the British Museum is an example. And then I have an episode about like, what's the problem with museums? And (laughs) so I I had several, uh, I had several people from various different tribes around the country talk about, yo, our ancestral stuff is in the Smithsonian and we're not happy about it. Right. Um, right. And so that's the kind of thing like, uh, anthropology was, was built on kind of like, Hey, we're going to subjugate these cultures, but we're going to find all their cool stuff and we're going to put it on display because it's very interesting. Um, but we're not going to let these cultures shape how we, um, determine, settlement patterns or, you know, how we expand into new parts of the country and stuff like that. Instead, it's going to be total subjugation and in some cases, total annihilation. And uh, so that's the dark background of anthropology. And so that's that's kind of what you're getting at for what anthropology has to reckon with now. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a really strong push now in anthropology and archaeology to decolonize the discipline. And so to, to recognize the, the dark past of the discipline, where it came from, what it was intended to do, um, kind of the, the harmful byproducts of studying anthropology, and then letting um, indigenous voices be part of the narrative moving forward, letting um, queer voices be part of the narrative moving forward, uh, so on and so forth. And so just kind of approaching multivocality as a requirement for how we talk about the past and how we talk about other cultures too. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of tricky things to navigate with anthropology right now. Um, yeah, it sounds like it's at a real, like, uh, I don't know, fork in the road. Maybe. It, yeah. And I, the professional organizations are having a really hard time coming to grips with it, too. 
because um, yeah. they're they're kind of caught between how do we maintain the status quo because there's a lot of uh, financial responsibility. I was going to say there, that's where the money is, right? Yeah. And how do we, um, you know, be socially responsible? And then uh, that's not always uh, financially uh, advantageous for them. And so there's a lot of conflict internally hmm. in the professional organizations. Are there, um, do you know of any good like thought experiments that are taught in, in that field? Sort of like, here's why this is important. Uh, you know, you you gave the King Tut example, I think is a really good one. And this is one that, um, it was even tr- like, was very tricky for me is talking with my sister who is also um, anthropologist by uh, field of study. And, you know, that sense where it seems like it should be somewhat cut and dry and depending on who you talk to, it is cut and dry, but it's cut and dry in very different ways. Yeah. Uh, but just that kind of reconciliation of like interest spurred, or I think, I think the, the common, um, the common argument that, that people go to is, you know, whatever, um, damage is done the utility outweighs the damage in regards to <laughs> the ends justify the means <laughs> precisely well yeah, yeah i mean put, oh, put it man. simply um, that's, that's so we weak. got hiawatha's belt <laughs> on display for everyone to see exactly it doesn't matter yeah yeah that well, the tribe is like you know decimated yeah look at know? this glorious headdress exactly yes. everyone is dead but i have the headdress yeah i I mean, we were talking about when King Tut came to OMSI and like that was a yeah. very, very formative experience for me. And one, one that I felt like uh, reflected positively on like my understanding of other cultures and histories. And then like you were saying that that fork in the road. Um, yeah, we, we got into a good chat about it. And like ultimately, I feel like she's totally right. And like sometimes you play just a little bit of bigger brother, a devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I was curious if there's any like anything that people point to as like a here, here's a good example of something that seems that simple but in fact it is and isn't at the same time oh man that is a really good question uh somewhat related i imagine that there's also this thought of like well if we can't continue on with the status quo and like display king tut's you know sarcophagus wherever we want to whenever we want to how are the children going to know this mm-hmm. or how how will we generate revenue for more mm-hmm. study and whatnot totally. yeah you know? cuz that's how that's how we've always done it and right. that's how we know how to do it so then the question is should you be generating revenue like then it becomes almost an anti-capitalist <laughs> conversation don't even get me started yeah but i mean that's that's also a big part of anthropology is really? questions mm-hmm. of commodifying culture mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. questions of like um, you know, in terms of museums, it's like, you know, a lot of them are nonprofit organizations, but also like they're sustained on well, the can, exploitation of other cultures. Yeah. And you can be a nonprofit. This, this got really deep. I'm sorry. <laughs> you can be a nonprofit organization, but you're still as, as an organization here within the United States, uh, paragon of, of capitalism, uh, you're still, under the shell of capitalism. Right. And, and you can't, I think you can't delude yourself with yeah. that. Yeah. So then the question is, is kind of like it, uh, to come back to what, what you were asking about, like, uh, and if I put you too much on the spot, <laughs> please feel free to take a pass. <laughs> we will talk about bikes later. Listeners. I, I promise you. <laughs> we'll, we'll bring it back. I promise. Here's, here's my pass is the, the approach that a lot of people are taking now is kind of like recognizing that, um, 
you know, it's kind of like that Simpsons meme where there is no ethical consumption in late capitalism. Like, uh, you have to say, okay, I recognize that. Let's talk about harm reduction. Mm. And so then you look at, you know, like how, how can we bring in multivocality? We're still bringing in multivocality in a capitalist system, which is, you know, at the core exploitative, um, and you've just kind of got to work with it. And it's, it's frustrating because it's so slow, but it is incrementalism and it's, it's just kind of where we are now. Right. And so, um, there is, there is this kind of like mass awareness right now in not only in anthropology, but I, I think like with the broader political and cultural environment that we're in right now, there's a lot of, uncomfortable conversations that are happening in the mainstream. Definitely. I think if you took me 15 years, like 15 years ago, me and brought that person over to the present, that person would be very shocked in a good way of how many different voices are being heard in, in whatever field. Yeah. You know, cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah thank you i appreciate yeah. it yeah. yeah i like i like diving for the the deep thought yeah, <laughs> yeah this is great um switching gears just a tad you are a cyclist right? oh slash... those are those are spd shifters yeah right. nice, i'm nice. an spd shifter yeah <laughs> um well t- tell us about how you got into biking and and by relation what what your biking experience in pdx is like or or, or what's your day-to-day oh man uh so the origin story, um, I more or less grew up in rural North Carolina where there really wasn't any cycling infrastructure or cycling community or cycling culture. And, but there was a BMX culture. And so this was like in the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, I rode BMX, I rode dirt. And then like we would put our bikes in our trucks and stuff and we'd go into the city, which was Charlotte and we'd ride street and we would get, you know, kicked out by security and stuff. <laughs> Drive the pegs on, on the yeah, wheels the, and everything. The grind pegs, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we'd go out and ride and stuff and, and cause shenanigans. Then we'd drive back out to the country. Uh, and so that was kind of like my intro to cycling. Uh, was BMX and I learned how to be self-sufficient. Like you were talking about, like uh, you don't necessarily have like the tools or the money to like have top of the line stuff or like buy new parts. So you just learn how to fix it with what you got. And so I kind of like learned how to completely disassemble a bike and put it back together through BMX. And I had like at one point, three different frames that were like Franken bikes yes. that were just like all in some sort of like disarray or yeah. like almost made, not quite. And I took yeah. parts off of this to put onto here. At right some on. point, one of those frames had a full bike. <laughs> right. and, and so I, I just kind of learned uh, a lot about biking, like just the mechanical structure that is a bike uh, through BMX uh, in that. And it was, it was funny. Like, now looking back, like my mom and my dad both had these really nice road bikes mm-hmm. from the eighties. Uh, they, they had a specialized in a Peugeot and it's like now sometimes I see those bikes in like used bike shops uh-huh. 
and I just drool over them, and I'm just like, oh, my God, I wish I had not let them sell it in that <laughs> oh, one yeah. garage yeah. sale. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like at the time I was riding BMX, and I was like, man, road bikes are lame. I'm like, <laughs> those are grandpa bikes. <laughs> yeah, those are nerd bikes. <laughs> Only nerds in spandex ride that shit. And so, uh, and so you know, it was like I, I let them sell it in the yard sale, and they're like, "Do you do you want to hang on to these bikes?" And I was like, "No, get rid of these bikes. Uh, <laughs> they have so, gears." Yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, they have gears. Yeah, but mine's fixed. <laughs> I can do flat land on this thing." Uh, and so, <laughs> I uh, you know later on got into like uh, mountain biking, mm-hmm. and then that was like. You know, incrementalism. Like sure. uh, now, we're talking about gears, and and I'm it's I'm, like mountain biking. It's kind of like BMX with gears. Yeah, you know? you're doing stupid stuff with your body on a yeah, bike. Yeah, and you know, it's like the more and more I I rode it, rode it. Um, you know, I I got super into it, and then there was a long period of my life where I didn't ride bikes, and I moved to you know I, I moved all around the country. And at th- at that time, you know, I started off in rural North Carolina and I moved out to Oregon and I really like, I saw all these road cyclists and I was like, man, like even in small towns like Corvallis and Philomath, like hmm. there are bike lanes. Like I was living in Philomath at that time huh? and I was like, there are bike lanes out here. This is crazy. This is awesome. And this was like 2008 and uh, then I ended up getting recruited to a job in Kentucky. And so I had to move back East to Kentucky and I didn't have a bike for years. And then I ended up going to grad school in Kentucky and I was like, I'm going to stop driving a car. Like I got super into sustainability and I was like, I'm going to stop driving a car. I'm just going to ride a bike. And so I bought a Fuji Absolute. It's like a, a commuter hybrid, okay. like kind of intro level commuter bike. Flat bars? Flat bars, okay. yeah. Uh, and uh, I immediately put a cargo rack on the back. And I didn't have panniers, uh, but I would strap things to the cargo yes. rack. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so that was that was like my intro. And it was like my commute from my, my apartment to campus every day was around like eight miles round trip. And so it was like to do that at least once a day was already taking a lot for, for me, my motivation was how do I reduce my carbon footprint? Okay. And, uh, it was also like just driving kind of sucked and like parking sucked. And I had a funner time riding a bike and I was like, okay, this is that was my intro right to on. commuter cycling and it's kind of one of those things where you know now when i have people as as i'm you know kind of more experienced in commuter cycling i have i have friends who are like oh, man i want to ride my bike like you do i want to you know ride all over the city and they'll talk about the the bike they want and i'm like you know like maybe maybe you should go for like an intro to commuter not like right. a, a like maybe you should look at the $400 bike and not the $2,000 bike. Like I know that's, that's really exciting to look at. It's gorgeous, but let's figure out how much you're actually going to ride a bike first. Yeah. And that was kind of where I was with that Fuji where I rode that thing every day for five or six years. And I ended up putting 
I had also like I I owned a car that I had just bought like a year before I I I got that bike, and the dealership called me, and it was this funny moment where they called me and they were like, "You haven't been in for a service appointment." And I was like, "I haven't been driving," and they were, <laughs> they were like, "You what? need to bring your car in for a service appointment," and I was like, "I haven't been driving," and they were, they were like, "It should still come in, <laughs> right? How many right. miles are on it?" And I'm like, like. Not not that many. Uh, I told him, and they were they were 40. like, they're like, wait, what? How? And so I was like, I brought my my car in for a service eventually uh-huh. Uh-huh. with the bike in the back hatch, uh-huh. and they were like, uh, do you need a loaner vehicle? And I was like, no, I'm just gonna ride my bike home. And, <laughs> ride my bike home. And th- that was kind of like the tipping point for me right. was was like realizing that I had more fun and just more accessibility by being a commuter cyclist. And, uh, so, so that Fuji, like, I mean, I got to the point where I was out riding the Fuji, you know, like you, you get to a point with a bike where you kind of feel like you're, you're fighting the bike Hmm. to ride it. Uh, and I felt that way with that Fuji, like at the beginning, it was more bike than I could handle. Uh And then within a couple of years, I felt like I was fighting the bike to ride it. Um, and yeah, it, it was you get your preferences sort of, you're like, I know what I like and what I don't like now. Yeah. And there were, there were like the bike shop that I would go to, to, to get tune ups and stuff like that. They'd be like, Hey, this bike's awesome. You should go take this for a test ride. And they were always trying to tease me into buying a new uh-huh. bike, um, as they should, you know, it's, it's their job. Um, but I would take these road bikes out and I'd be like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm just in love with this bike. And then I'd hop back on my, my Fuji and I'd be like, uh, it's, it's fine. It, it gets me from point <laughs> A to point okay. B. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's not exciting, but it gets me from point <clears throat> A to point B. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, you know, years went on and, uh, kind of come to the end of the story is, is like years went on and I ended up moving around a ton, moved to New Zealand, sold my car when I moved to New Zealand. And, uh, just cause it was like, how are you going to take that to New Zealand? Not right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a millionaire. I'm not going to take a <laughs> car to New Zealand. Uh, and neither was I going to take a bike. And so at the time though, I was staying with my brother here in Portland. And so I had been going all over the place, all over the country. I was doing contract work as an archeologist. And so I was going everywhere from like Kentucky to Arkansas, to Texas, to California. And, um, my brother was living in Portland. And so I was like, Hey, I'm going to move to New Zealand. Uh, I'm going to come up and stay with you for like six weeks. I'm going to sell my car, sell my bike, sell everything I possibly can go to New Zealand. And my intent was in New Zealand to buy a bike and it to be my car replacement. Okay. I get to New Zealand and I realize that's not exactly feasible. Uh, is it a matter of geography? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's There's what I was thinking. Famously cycling uh, culture slash rates at which people get hurt and or like injured in New Zealand are a little higher than you <laughs> oh, might really? expect. Yeah. Yeah. Check out, uh, I think one of the first times that Russ and Laura made national headlines was when <laughs> somebody got off of a bike in Wellington or something and just punched him. Holy or took shit. a swing at him. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, uh, if you Google pathless pedal, uh, I, I'm going to like check New this Zealand out incident. Wow. Like it should pop up there. <laughs> but I was just like, oh, yep, that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, not super bike friendly. No. Yeah. Holy yeah. Shit. Put it lightly. <laughs> Even between cyclists, huh? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, and so it was like for various reasons, you know, like things fell apart in New Zealand, and, uh-huh. and I moved back to the states. 
And the, the first kind of like place that I could land on my feet was back in Kentucky. And I had a job, a place to stay. It was, it was like, as things were falling apart in New Zealand, I, uh-huh. you know, sent out emails to friends and stuff and they were like, yeah, I've got a job for you. And there's like another friend was like, yeah, come stay with us. Like rent free. Like, don't even worry about it. And I was just like living for free and working at a job. And then I had another friend, like, actually I have like more bikes than I could ever possibly ride in my entire lifetime. So borrow one of them as Who's long this as friend? you want. Uh, his name is Seth Short. <laughs> big, big shout out to Seth Short, who now lives in Seattle. Ah, uh, I forget the I'll name. I'll be of visiting the, you, Seth. Yeah, I forget <laughs> the name of the shop he works at, but he he works at a bike co-op in Seattle. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was working at a bike co-op in Louisville, okay. Kentucky, and so uh, he gave me this single-speed Franken bike. That like, yes, it was my car replacement, but it was like Louisville's actually a pretty hilly city, mm-hmm. and so it's still like near the Appalachians, yeah, or not super, but it, it's kind of like uh, as you get away from the the Appalachian Mountains, heading west, you start getting into kind of like gorge country where it's like negative relief instead of positive relief. Oh, and so, and so okay. you have a lot of these like really deeply. Um, what do you call it? Like incised, um, like stream drainages. Hmm. Uh, and and it's just like this crazy terrain where it's like from the air, it looks like just a kind of relatively flat city. And then like when you're riding your bike around, you're like, Oh my God, I've got to go like way down to just get from like one part of the town to the next. Uh, and so you kind of learn this like mental topography of a city as you ride around. And it was funny, like moving to Kentucky the first time, before I moved to New Zealand and all that, like I, I didn't know anybody there. I didn't have any connections there. I just moved there for a job. And I think it, it took me about a year and a half or so to really feel like I was at home there. And one of the things that made me feel at home there was riding my bike because the pace and the scale that you move around a city on a bike is so much different than in a car, mm. so much different than on foot. And so you're able to kind of observe and interact with your surroundings at a different level when yep. you're on your bike. And it was really, and, and also the cycling community there too was like, it was not a bike friendly city. It was a very dangerous city to ride a bike around in. Like there were hardly any bike lanes at all when Ooh. I first started riding yeah, yeah. bikes at like, and it was just kind of like, you're going to go and for the concept it. of sharing the lane, probably uh, zero concept. Okay. Of that. Yeah. <laughs> I actually got hit by a car oh, deliberately. No. Really? They yeah. like ran into you. Oh yeah. Oh, they my ran gosh. me off the road with their Sheesh. car. Oh wow. Uh, and it was amazing. Like I, I got like, just kind of like I was, I was riding and this car came up next to me and just checked me to Holy the side cow. and I went flying <clears throat> oh. and I hit a parked car oh. and bounced off of the parked car my body rolled onto the sidewalk. My bike was kind of like half between a parked car and, and the, and the road. And there was a couple walking down the sidewalk and they saw this whole thing unfold in front of them. Uh-huh. And so, um, the guy came and ran up behind me and pulled me further onto the sidewalk so that I would be safe. Oh, that's and, nice. You know, his partner ran out and grabbed my bike and dragged my bike onto the sidewalk so that it would be safe. And I was like, did you get the license number? <laughs> and they were like, 
nah, man, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah. They, they call things happen so fast. They called the cops and the cops are just like, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. Like, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. It sucked, but it didn't stop me from writing. Yeah. Uh, and so overall though, you know, experiences like that included and getting honked at and getting harassed and stuff like that, all of that included, you know, is, is like overall I had a very positive experience that made me really fall in love with Louisville, Kentucky. And while I was in grad school, I was using my bike as, as the commuter vehicle, um, because I could get there faster than I could by car or by bus and Louisville. Yeah. All right. And so I was like, that was, that was part of my motivation. You know, I I said earlier it was, it was offsetting my carbon footprint, but it was also like a matter of convenience. It's like I can get from point A to point B faster than any other mode of transportation. Yeah, right on. Uh, and you know, even taking into account that I would have to fight cars to get there. Uh, and so that was great. And then I ended up, um, through my studies getting involved with the sustainability council and they were very involved with the city. It was kind of like a, a university city partnership, um, that also overlapped a lot with a bicycle advocacy, advocacy group called bicycling for Louisville, a lot like, um, bike PDX, mm-hmm. uh, bike, bike Portland. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we met with the city, you know, regularly, we would talk with city engineers, city planners, and in a matter of years, we had a, a, a bike lane network that was, you know, it spanned the city. Nice. And then part of my involvement with the university, we did a, uh, we called it the earn a bike program. And what it was, was if you agreed to surrender your parking permit as a student, then you would get a $400 voucher Holy cow. to use at any local independent bike shop. Wow. And that's getting my gears <clears throat> spinning. PSU. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. What up PSU? <laughs> I got University the, of Portland. I got <clears throat> the playbook. I will hand it off to you. Right on. Uh, and so we ended up effectively offsetting 1800 cars. Holy shit. Yeah. Through through my involvement with the uh, Sustainability Council. Just oh, by come on, Portland. 1,800 people surrendered their parking permits and said, yes, I want a bike. Yeah. And so the, the follow-through on that involved we had to put a lot of bike parking in because, like, almost instantly we saw mm. bike racks overflow. Oh, right, mm. right. And mm. we were like, oh, my God, it's working. <laughs> and, like, the, the bike and then shop. You're like, Oh my God, it's working. <laughs> what do we do? And so we had to put up those like fix it stations too. Have you uh-huh. ever seen those yeah. things? It's like the, I love the those pole things. with all the yeah. tools and stuff. Yep. Yeah, those things were awesome. And uh yeah, it it was a lot of MacGyvering your way through like tools and, and uh uh cycling infrastructure in the early days and then it became much more elaborate and, mm. and a little more eloquent uh as we went. But it was it was really fun. So to fast forward to my experience here in Portland, like I'm spoiled rotten for bike <laughs> infrastructure. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I lived here for a year and a half without a car and I used a, I was living in Beaverton and I would ride my bike into Portland, come over to Williger and, uh, you know, sometimes hit like 47 miles an hour coming down yeah. the hill. Uh, and, you know, sometimes just hop on the max just to make life easier and like just really, really fell in love with Portland. Kind of the same way I did with Louisville. Like the bike was kind of my, my, 
vessel for moving around the city and also like it's just so much fun and it, like you know no no pun intended the <laughs> shirt i'm wearing like rain or shine like right on. in louisville you know it's like louisville has terrible weather it's, they have winter there oh yeah yeah they have a southeastern summer and a midwestern winter <laughs> oh no and so it's like <laughs> i left i left the midwest because yeah. of the winters yeah it's 100 degrees with 100 percent humidity oh. in the summer and in the winter it's sub-zero <laughs> and riding a bike in that is not fun no uh you've really it, like there's there's kind of like no way to be a fair weather rider like if you're a fair weather rider you get maybe like six weeks to ride your bike okay. all year <laughs> long uh and it's i feel like it's kind of similar here it's like we have a gorgeous summer. Uh, it's about six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's our best kept secret, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, it's a gorgeous summer, but you really can't be a fair weather writer. No, and the episode no, no. that you all had about dialing in your rain gear recently, you oh, know, yeah. when, when we got into rainy season and all that, that resonated with me a lot because I dialed in my rain gear back in Louisville because it was also my cold weather gear. Mm. And mm-hmm. so for me, it wasn't so much like a uh, when I moved here, it wasn't so much of a transition to dial in my rain gear. It was a transition to dial in my cold weather gear because my rain gear here, I sweat my butt off. Oh, yeah, yeah that makes sense if and, it was from like the Louisville winters. Yeah. Right. And so it's it's kind of a trade off for me, like with the gear I have is is like I either deal with sweating or I deal with being, it's like I'm either wet from within or wet from without. Yep. Yep. And that's a classic Portland dilemma. Yes. The conundrum. Yeah. And it's like, you can get rain gear that, that will be perfect, but it's going to cost you a lot of money. Yes. Uh, and I don't have that kind of money. So <laughs> I've got to deal with what I got. Right. And the yeah. kicker, too, is it will still only work for a amount of time. <laughs> right. It will eventually... it's still, yeah, it still has like a limited yeah. you know, lifespan. Yeah. That was the takeaway from that yeah. episode was you're going to get wet. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, biking in Portland as a commuter, uh, it, it was like now I, I do own a car. I share it with my fiance. Um and for the most part, like she has mobility issues. And so for the most part, like she was using the car 90% and I was still, um, a, a bike, you know, just to get around the city, I use my bike, but we love to go hiking and stuff and, and get out into the back country. And so that's, that's mostly what the car is for. Um, she bought her first bike as an adult just a couple weeks ago at Gladys bikes, Gladys, oh, nice. Gladys. Oh. Uh, they were amazing. They did such a good job and we shopped all over the city and, uh, and Gladys did a great job. They set her up with a, uh, Kona Rove Mm -hmm. and it's like a, like a touring bike kind of setup. Yes. And was this posted on their Instagram? Yes. Okay. Yeah. This is like, I'm getting flashbacks from this. Okay. Yeah. In front of the mural and all that. Yeah. Uh, so it was her first bike day uh, ever, ever. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, yeah. and so she has been a rain or shine bike commuter. You know, we've had a, a few rainy days in the yeah. past, in the past few weeks and she's been a rain or shine bike commuter and I'm so proud of her. Like she's, she's doing a great job. And, uh, you know, it, it's like, she doesn't really know the logistics of 
going to get groceries and stuff. And, and so it's like, she doesn't have a cargo setup. She doesn't have panniers. Sure. I do. I've got a cargo rack. I've got panniers. And so it's like, I can get a week's worth of groceries on my bike. And so, you know, she'll get off work and she'll be like, Hey, I want to go get groceries, but I can't carry it all back. <laughs> can you come and be the mule? And I'm like, right on. Yeah. 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 And so it's like, you know, I'll get off bike. Uh, I'll get off work. She'll get off work. We'll go meet that up. That sounds like a beautiful relationship yeah, for me, man. It's a lot <laughs> of it, it's a new kind of uh element of our relationship uh-huh. too, is to kind of like discover that we uh both enjoy biking. It is something that I've enjoyed for a long time that she's kind of like just coming to appreciate. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So uh so yeah. this may be your first pedal palooza together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last year was my first pedal palooza. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh the the past two years before that it was just too tricky for me to really be a part of it. Living uh-huh. in Beaverton is oh, like, right. yeah. that's an yeah. exhausting ride. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the Tualatin Mountains right there, right. They're, they're a little tiring to the, go back up. Right, exactly. <laughs> like you've been riding all day. And and I will say to my dying day, riding slow is much harder than riding fast. It mm-hmm. is. And so, you know, you're you're with a group of people and, and you're riding slow. And that's fine because it's a social ride. But you're you don't realize how much you're wearing down your body that way and yeah. then yes having to go back up and over to get to Beaverton i i hear you yeah, <laughs> yeah. in the dark too <laughs> yeah, yeah like late at night you're like oh that hill oh my god <laughs> indeed well yeah that's a i like how you mentioned Tualatin mountains instead of Tualatin hills i feel like that's a i feel like that's an often skipped distinction Maybe it's it's from living in Kentucky where oh, yeah. where there's not so much positive relief that like mm-hmm. they they are mountains. No, I think they, I think they are mountains. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like especially anyone who's ridden over from Beaverton, it's like yeah, I'd call that a mountain. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting too as a cyclist. Like your your description of of riding on the coast, like the North California coast and the Southern Oregon coast, you have this really intimate connection to the landscape, and even riding around the city is like you you have this mental map of how you're going to move around the city mm-hmm. based on kind of like a like a cost path where it's like okay that way is going to be really steep that way might be further but it's going to be shallower i'm going to take the further and shallower just mm. because i don't want to hurt right now right like maybe if i'm feeling really frisky later i'll i'll take like the the short and steep definitely yeah so it's like bikes are such an amazing way to really build such an intimate relationship with your surroundings, no matter where you are. Yeah. You get, you get sort of a, a, I don't know, an associative memory with places Yeah, while you're biking through it, like positive or negative, however, however <laughs> it is, you know, uh, as you're biking through it, like I, I have a different feeling. Uh, I would, say for example tillamook and 33rd like northeast hollywood ish yeah very different feeling biking through there than like i I work as a bus driver than i do like driving through there yeah yeah i think the whole city uh you know there's so many ways like when i do hop in a car and i'm driving around a lot of the times i find myself like at an extra level or layer of frustration um, what? Who is that knocking on our door? Hey, oh my gosh, door. it's executive producer Brock Dennis. Hey, Brock. Hey. Hey, wait. 
on Mike. Just bringing you the most recent edition of the Chainbreaker Bike Book from Microcosm Publishing. Oh. Yeah, they were nice enough to send us a copy to look at, and it sure seems like an amazing compendium of knowledge. So, hey. <laughs> I'm going to take my uh, my car share car and leave. Okay. Well, thank you for coming over and sharing that with us. Totally not planned. This is great. <laughs> That's Dude. awesome. Dude. See you, Brock. Have a good one. Special thanks to our sponsors, Microcosm Publishing. <laughs> wow, to this is cool. To our generous yeah. Patreon to donors. Speaking of sponsors... Yes. You know what we haven't talked about um, tonight. Would anyone would anyone have any uh any qualms against me taking a second kombucha? No, have at it. Okay. <sighs> I've already had a very large portion of kombucha today. I <laughs> oh, feel yeah. like uh any more would start to threaten the digestive threshold. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, right? It's like, oh, probiotics, good for you. Yeah, yeah you're just, not going to drink but... a six pack of it. No, it, it's going <laughs> to mess you up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a new flavor that they have there. These beverages, mm. courtesy of the beer mongers on Southeast Division and Twelfth. So I've had the oolong, which is what I'm drinking right now, and okay. very satisfied with it. Oh, it's from this, ferment. Yes, the sencha, however, is quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'll give it a try next week. It's I saw two I'm, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm digging the subtleties." Yeah, yeah, like when you, what is it that that like? At first, it doesn't reveal, and then the more that you get into it, you're like, "No, mm. there's there's, there's, there's something definitely yeah, there." Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I'm enjoying the Freem IPA, courtesy of Chris, <laughs> <laughs> and well, also available at the beer mongers. It's interesting. Uh, some of the people from Freem left and started ferment brewing. Oh, no kidding. And really? So uh, uh, they're do both of them are doing amazing things, but it, it's just really cool to see uh, ferment breaking into kombucha. Ha. Nice. Ha. And it all comes full circle. Yeah. It all comes full circle. Um, one last thing before we wrap up the interview proper. Uh, biking in Louisville, winters, versus the... I'm not even going to call it winter here in in Portland. The the days of snow, <laughs> yeah. what where days every of snow? where everyone like loses their shit. The day of you know? snow, right? Yeah, like okay. So I think you you may have kind of answered that question. Like, how is that for you? You you still bike through you the in Portland. I'm a year round rider. Uh huh. In Louisville, there there were times where, um, so it, there there's kind of this this area of the country where in the winter, you, you know, it's like people make fun of the Southeast because like they'll, they'll get an inch of snow and it closes the city, but it's not the inch of snow that closes the city. It's the inch of ice beneath the snow. Mm. Yeah. And so Louisville was kind of in that beltway of ice. And so when it snowed, there was also ice and there's not a tire made to handle ice. No chain, not no for spikes, cars, nothing. not for yeah. bikes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's, it's just kind of like, nah, you, you just got to walk around mm. or just kind of hole up for a couple of days and, uh, wait for the city to clear it out. But like the city wouldn't clear out secondary streets. Mm-hmm. So those are the streets that you're riding on for a bike. Right. Um, and so you would tend to ride, um, if you were a commuter, a lot of the folks who were year round riders would ride with either mountain bike tires or or just with fatter tires with uh, decreased uh, pressure. Okay, yeah. Uh, and so that way you had a little more grip on the on the ice. 
Um, and just like accounting for like patches of ice here and there that just would hang around for like six weeks at a time because it would stay sub zero for six weeks. Hmm. <laughs> and like, yeah, I, I can't imagine biking in that at yeah. all. I have some photos on my Instagram from like way, way back when, where it's, it's just like, I had like snowboarder goggles uh-huh. on with like a ski mask and just like, you know, like big gloves and you're just kind of like, I'm not going anywhere fast. But I'm going. But I'm going to do it. Nice. Yes. Right on. Nice. <laughs> and, you know, here is just kind of like, uh, like I said earlier, is is like, do I want to be wet from within or wet from without? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to ride year round. Like it, the thing I love so much about Portland that, that I, I tell people back east, they're like, oh, it rains all the time. And I'm like, yeah, but it's gentle. And it's, yeah. it's like, yeah. in the southeast, if it's raining, it's a downpour. Yes. There's no way to stay dry. Like, no way. You're going to be soaked to the bone in the blink of an eye. And here it's like, if it's a drizzle, which is most of the winter, it's just kind of like, yeah, you wear the right things. You'll be a little damp here and there. But it's like, you're, you're going to get a little wet, but at least you're not soaked to the bone. Right. <laughs> and at least you're not freezing. You know, it's like there's no danger of you actually having hypothermia, hypothermia. <laughs> on a 20 minute bike ride. Right. Like, whereas in Louisville, it's like there were days where it was like, yeah, five minutes of exposure, you'll you'll get frostbite. And it's like, OK, yeah, maybe I'm not leaving the house today. Hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you again for coming out. Thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of what you all do at this oh, podcast. I've been listening for a long time and it's just funny that we share the same space. <laughs> yeah. 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 And like our, our paths didn't cross until today. Yeah. Full disclosure to our audience. We didn't book this guest spot until like 20 minutes before we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad this worked out. This is awesome. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cheers. cheers. I, I'm a fan of coincidence. Uh, Chris, for anyone who wants to check out your show, where and when can they find you? Uh, you can find the Go Dig a Hole podcast uh, anywhere you stream podcasts. Um, the source is on SoundCloud. Uh, we try and have at least one episode a month. Uh, that's a new episode, and we put out uh, back catalog episodes of our uh, archive uh, probably about once a month, too. So you're, you're looking at around two episodes a month, uh, and, and we're on social media on basically all the platforms at Go Dig a Hole. Nice. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Do you want to hang around for our news and headlines? Sure. Okay. Our news are our headlines. What? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Silly synonyms. Hey, but before all of that, I love, I love, I love, I love my calendar. Don't, don't ever use that. Oh, but I used the one without music. I like it. Does that one count? It's solo acapella. (laughs) (laughs) The second Thursday of every month, the Joyful Riders Club in Minneapolis. The second Friday of every month, the Boston Bike Party. Also the second Friday of every month, the Indianapolis Bike Party. Also also the second Friday of every month, the East Bay Bike Party. And last Friday of every month, the Baltimore Bike Party. The first Saturday of every month is the Civil Unrest Ride, which is coming up here on the 4th. I believe there will be lightsabers. Ooh. Like, as in bring your lightsaber. Yes. Yes. All the lightsabers. <laughs> every second Sunday of every month, also here in Portland, is the Corvidae Bike Club Ride. Ca-ca! May 15th, the Santa Cruz Ride of Silence in memory of friends and loved ones who were killed by car drivers while riding bikes. 
uh, over there it meets at Abbott Square for a 6.30 p.m. departure. Also, if you are not in Santa Cruz or in the Santa Cruz area, go look for a Rite of Silence in your area. I'm sure there is one. And if there's not, maybe it's your time and opportunity to make one. Indeed. Uh, May 17th through the 19th is Filmed by Bike right here in Portland, Oregon. Yay! May 26th, the P-Town Throwdown 2019 over at Daddy's Board Shop. And June 15th, the Analog Alley Cat. July 20th. I almost said June. July 20th, the Gorge Pedal. And upcoming Film by Bike tour dates, Victor, Idaho, May 17th, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, May 29th. Crested Butte, Colorado, June 27th. Dallas, Texas, June 29th. Detroit, Detroit, Michigan, July 12th. Missoula, Montana, September 15th. Bendigo, Australia, October 4th. And Akron, Ohio. Keep it real. November 3rd. (laughs) Miles of Portraits, they still have two dates here in the southwest of the United States, both in New Mexico. Santa Fe on May 4th and Albuquerque, New Mexico, May 11th. And we have one headline in the form of an announcement. We have a new donor. Yay. Thank you so much. Welcome to the crew, Adam D. Yes. And now for... We got mail. Hey, we got mail. From Mr. T, hello, Sprocket Podcast. I was listening to the recent episode where you described past efforts to improve Division Street in Portland. It was interesting to hear your interpretation of so-called improvements that only seem to make things worse. There's a word for that, actually, in German. Schlimmschbesserung. That's <laughs> as good as it's going to get, is making things worse through an honest effort to improve them. Have a good one, Mr. T. Please write you know, in they, and tell they, us how much we're butchering it's, that. It's like the Germans have a word for everything. Yeah, there's there's that saying. And so far, it's turned out to be true, as far as I can tell. Thank you. Um, Let's see. Uh, We also have a voicemail from Phil in Alaska. Oh, yeah. And I will play it as soon as I find it. Also, thanks for writing in, Mr. T. When I get good at pronouncing it, then I'll just, you know, sprinkle it into normal vocabulary every day. (laughs) Hey, Sprocketers. It's Phil the Bear Man in Alaska. Uh, I tell you what, I was just listening to your gameplay of Open Road this morning, and I have to say, I'm quite impressed. Game sounds fun, and the, and the actual listening to the four of you playing was awesome. However, I got a little bit of a beef. Uh, you keep saying Pierre. Pierre, South Dakota. It's uh, like it's spelled. Sorry, guys. It's Pierre, like the thing that goes into a body of water, not Pierre? like Pierre, Pierre, the French dude. Uh, it's a weird South Dakota thing. Uh, if you ever live there, you'll understand it. Anyways, keep up the great work. Appreciate all that you do and all the miles and smiles I get listening to you guys. Have a good one. Uh, I respect Thanks, that. Yeah. You too, Phil. Thank you for calling in for Pierre. Pierre. I dig it. South Dakota. I get to learn a new pronunciation every week. Wow. I grew up calling it Pierre. Okay. You do the, you know, you do the the capitals of yeah. the, 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 mm-hmm. the states. Pierre. How about that? But well, it's Pierre. Now we're in the know. There's a uh, there's a town in Indiana, P E R U. I'm guessing it's not pronounced Peru. It's Peru. Peru. Yes. How about that? There's a town in Kentucky spelled like Versailles, 
like mm-hmm. the Palace of Versailles, is pronounced Versailles. Oh, really? Nice. It, See, I would have scored 100 see, on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but that's pronounced as it, as it looks. Uh, right, right. <laughs> to us, anyways. <laughs> I think um, one of my favorites, one Oregon reference, uh, growing up in Wallawa County, which is close to Walla Walla, is having people come over the pass and be like, Walla Wallawa County? <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's Wallawa County. Yeah, I guess... Living in Portland, we don't have a whole lot of room to talk about mispronunciations yeah. and localities. Uh, that's There's... how you spot the newcomers, huh? Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's true. There's a Couch Street. Exactly. <laughs> there, there are Versus some of us. Cooch. There are some of us who just refuse to to change. It's yeah, all a, it's all a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> One last bit here. Uh, this came to us from executive producer Brock Dittis. He says, this person is either my trolling hero or very unaware. This was a comment in a, uh earlier episode about bike lights. <laughs> and it took me a while. You actually had to point out that this was a pun. I was just trying to break it down. <laughs> I don't know if it's correct, but that's, that's just, my interpretation. I took it at face value. I didn't really like think too deep about this, but I was also... Very perplexed by it until you broke it down. Fair enough. Uh, anyways, this person who goes under the handle of unlimited mozzarella sticks <laughs> says, I have a rare, severe case of head lice, <laughs> which my doctor has prescribed a shampoo for me to use. I'm not legally allowed to fly or use public transport because of, it is highly <laughs> contagious. <laughs> he- head lice. Yeah, I think so. Head, headlights. <laughs> headlights. Headlights. Precisely. Right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Got to keep it street legal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was great. Thank you, Unlimited Mozzarella Sticks. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for bearing with us this whole time. Yes. <laughs> you have reached the end of all things. And with that, we bid you adieu. Are you ready for this? I'm not. The Sprocket <laughs> Podcast is produced at StreamPDX Community Audio Studio thanks to the generous support of Open Signal. The website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and the Instagrams at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurt Bird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to our sustaining donors, Shadowfoot, Katharina Mellengard. Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lean, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Wise. Todd Parker, Dan Gebhardt, who's, who's a, a time, time traveler. traveler. Dave Knows. Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley. Peanut Butter. Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom. Andrew in Colorado, Drew the Welder, Anna, hey, thanks for stopping by this week. Andre Johnson, King of Division, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, who's sitting right next to me. What? Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of the Regranary. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Nathan Poulton. Chris Rawson, Rory in Michigan, Michael Flournoy. Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay, Tim Coleman. Harry Hugel, EJ Finneran. Congratulations, by the way, Brad Hipwell. Thomas Skato, Keith Hutchinson, Ranger Tom. Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam, Derek Wagner. Jason Oftenberg, Microcosm Publishing. Thanks for the book. David Moore. Todd Grosbeck, Chris Barron, Chris, Chris Barron, Barron, Chris, Chris Barron. Barron. Sean Baird, Simon, Gregory Braithwaite. Ryan Morrow, Jimmy Diesel, Dude Luna. Matthew Rooks. Ka-ka! 
Marshall, Paula at Funatake Cyclecraft. Philip M. Spartan Dale. No relation. Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative, Kiwana and Sarah G. And to our latest donor... Michael B. and Adam D. Thank you so much. And now our former donors who helped us get this far. Now brush your teeth. And (laughs) go to bed. (laughs) 